Love. This video is a message from a little boy named Salman. He disappeared five years ago in Syria during the war to defeat ISIS. He still hasn't been found. My name is Poonam Taneja. I'm traveling to Syria to find out what happened to Salman and the thousands of children like him, lost in one of the most dangerous places on earth. From BBC Sounds and CBC Podcasts, Bloodlines. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The world's newest nation is in crisis. In South Sudan, a third of the population has fled homes due to violence. More than half of the people who are on the move are children. For months now, violence has spilled into the country from the civil war in neighboring Sudan. Last week, the UN reported that Sudan has more displaced people than anywhere else in the world. 10 million people without homes. Dr. Samantha Nutt is founder and president of the charity War Child Canada. She just returned from South Sudan last week, and she is with me in studio now. And a warning that this conversation may include some details of sexual violence. Sam, good morning. Good morning. Where were you in South Sudan? I was right at the border areas with Sudan. So uh, I was in a town called Malakal, another town called Wau, and there are areas that are experiencing a high number of returnees who are southern Sudanese who had fled that conflict into Sudan, who are now, because of the war in Sudan, coming back to to South Sudan. Many of them haven't lived there in decades. And it also includes a number of refugees, including I spent a considerable amount of time with Darfurian refugees and War Child Canada had significant operations in Darfur, West Darfur, for about 20 years until the violence began uh, last April. Where are your teams now? I mean, how, are they able to do the work that, that, that they need to do? In South Sudan, yes, they are. And they're across the country and they're doing really important work in the area of education, food security, working with women and girls and a lot of child protection work. Uh, our team, unfortunately, in Darfur last summer, they were, they were displaced as a result of the violence. Some of them were from the ethnic group that was being targeted. And so it was, became a very unsafe situation for them. And many of them had to flee across borders or were displaced within Sudan itself. And as you mentioned, I mean, our staff are are emblematic of the crisis that's facing all Sudanese with uh, 10 million people, the worst refugee and displacement crisis in the world. And they are among those who have been displaced and affected by this crisis. So it's very difficult for us to operate within Sudan at this moment, although we are trying to operate in and looking at areas that are more secure where we could, where where refugees and IDPs are arriving, where we can begin our our, our work there. You just got back a few days ago. I did. I'm still a little jet lagged. <laughs> well, and this must be really fresh in your mind in terms of what you saw. So describe, you mentioned Malakal. Yes. You've been there before. I have. What is it like now? Describe what this place looks like now. It is unrecognizable to me. I was there a few years ago before the violence that took place in 2016 to 2018, before the uprising that took place in some of the camps last summer. And the entire town has been completely decimated. There's uh, there's almost nothing left. It is um, shelled out buildings and bullet holes everywhere. There is it's they have a massive internally displaced camp there that also includes some refugees, about fifty thousand people, um, and they're effectively contained within these camps that are 
crowded, um, full of raw sewage, very few facilities and services being provided to them. Keep in mind that the crisis in South Sudan and Sudan over the last year in 2023, the global humanitarian appeals for both of these crises were less than 40% funded. So what that means is that you have a large number of very vulnerable people who are arriving who have access to very limited service in, in an environment of dwindling resources as the world has focused on other crises including Gaza and Ukraine. And so they're increasingly vulnerable, both within the camps and outside of the camps. But it is, um, in a way, it's almost post-apocalyptic. It's hard to describe it. I I could not recognize anything of the town that I had known when I was there before. And so for the people who are there in this unrecognizable town, what is life like for them? It's impossible. Every day is a grind. It is a struggle. They are worried about their children starving to death in front of them. They are facing food shortages, massive amounts of of insecurity, especially women and girls who are facing high risks of of sexual violence and other attacks, Um, early enforced marriages, because again, there are so few resources, few means to keep them protected to provide for families. And so it is every day is is a living nightmare and they're they're trapped. There's not really anywhere else for them to go. There are no jobs. Uh, they are dependent in many instances on humanitarian assistance. I was staying at the Unimis site, which is the United Nations peacekeeping mission in South Sudan, which is essentially a village of shipping containers and peacekeepers and aid workers who are frontline in trying to provide the level of humanitarian response, but it is drastically underfunded. And at the same time, just Malakal alone, they have received 100,000 returnees and refugees from Sudan just in the past 10 months. South Sudan, which is one of the poorest countries in the world, has received half a million, 500,000 returnees and refugees that they can barely provide support to. And so this is, this is the context. And, um, and it's, and it's very hard. You're dealing with people who are in tremendous need and the opportunity to meet those needs is, is diminishing. And as you mentioned, I mean, even within those refugee camps where people have been forced into, life isn't safe there. You meant there was a, an uprising. People talked about uh, uh, what happened last June. 13 people were killed in, in one of these camps. Yeah. What was going on there? And how did, what, what does that say about how difficult uh, and unsafe life is in those camps, which are ostensibly meant to protect people? Well, the conflict in Sudan is causing a lot of pressure regionally. And so you're getting uh, returnees and refugees who are arriving who are from different ethnic groups, for example, different tribal groups, and that is creating a lot of conflict. Um, You have different uh, alliances within the government as well, and some of that can be uh, ethnically driven, tribally driven. And so some of those realities, those larger political realities play out within the camps with some groups being favored over other groups, and that can result in in some violent clashes and with groups feeling persecuted. But for example, um, one of the toughest moments I had during this most recent trip is that we were, as part of our assessment to figure out what, how we could scale up in view of, of, the, of the growing needs, I spent time with Darfurian refugees who had just come across the border, and they did not feel safe in the within the UN-designated, government-designated camps, because they're from the ethnic minority that is frankly being slaughtered right now in Darfur. And so you can imagine 
imagine you've fled slaughter in your home community to arrive in another community where those same tensions are playing out. And they're staying in undesignated locations, mostly women and girls, very poor security, very high risk of, of, of rape and sexual violence, and no services being provided to them. And there are hundreds of them camped out in a in a bombed out mosque, effectively, receiving no services, and they haven't eaten in, in, in over a week. And so this is the kind of thing that you confront in those environments. And um, it's very difficult to reconcile. One young woman stood up and she said to me, those who came with guns uh, sought to kill us, but those who are indifferent to our suffering are destroying us. And um, and it's it, those kinds of things are, are are very hard to hear, especially when you recognize that there are so many forces that are competing against being able to do the right thing, which is providing the level of assistance and support that they desperately need. Do you still see those people? I mean, when you talk, you're just telling that story, and you're you're looking off into kind of the middle distance somewhere. Like you just come back from this place. And I just wonder whether you still see those people right now. I do. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's very raw at the moment, which is normal. Um, I've been doing this work for almost 30 years and you go through a process of, of uh, just figuring out where you fit <laughs> in the world and try to, how you navigate these two irreconcilable divides and it's it's hard because people put their expectations and their very survival on you and yet having to figure out the path for them and the path for us as an organization with dwindling resources too and and all of these other geopolitical manifestations that are taking place and negotiations that have to take place it's uh sometimes not clear how you're able to meet those needs and and honor um, in a dignified way those people whose lives are um, being destroyed and who are hoping that you will stop it. Do they feel forgotten? I mean, there's a lot that's going on in this world right now, and people's attention is being pulled in a million different directions all at the same time. And we'll talk about some of those other conflicts that, that is drawing some of that attention. But for those people that you saw, that you are still thinking about and seeing in your mind, do they feel forgotten by the world? They do. They do. Especially in, and I, I spend a lot of time in different conflict-affected countries within Africa. And ever since the crisis in Ukraine hit, they feel deeply neglected. And that's reflected in patterns of giving, not only as, as individuals, but also even as broader governments providing humanitarian aid and assistance. They see that their support has dwindled to about a third of what the previous budgets used to be in terms of the global humanitarian appeals. They see that, for example, food rations that were being provided by the UN food distribution systems that used to be once a month are now twice a year. Uh, famine, starvation, malnutrition, these are escalating in many of those environments, and people are feeling more and more vulnerable and more and more neglected. And and as I mentioned, that one young woman from Darfur who who made that comment, yeah. I mean, that's something that I hear all the time. Why is our suffering not enough? Why has the world forgotten about us? Why do we not matter? Why do these other crises matter, and yet we're allowed to be uh, neglected in this way? And what it's do you, very what do you say to them? You say that it's unfair, um, it is heartbreaking, 
and that you will do everything that you can to draw attention to it and to be present. It was interesting walking into that uh, Darfurian camp. One young girl was, um, she was amazing. She was about, she had just fit, she had just finished her medical school exams when, and as a doctor myself, I could, you know, completely understand where she was coming from with this. So she just finished her exams when the war broke out and she had, didn't even have any proof that she had completed the education when she had to flee by herself. She delivered one of uh, a young woman that she had met at the side of the road who was pregnant. And so she uh, went into labor and she delivered this baby at the side of the road. And she was from El Janino, which is where our staff had been operating for 20 years. And when I walked in with our team, which is an all-African team, I mean, uh, all of our staff throughout the world are from the countries in which we're operating. And and they had themselves had been refugees at various points in time. And when she saw us coming in, uh, she mentioned how she'd been in our, some of our youth leadership and training programs in Darfur. And she was explaining how difficult life was for them. And she said... Um, which was quite extraordinary. She said, uh, I know Wartel Canada from Janina. We knew you would not forget us. We knew you would come. Mm. And um, on the one hand, it's, it's extraordinary to hear that and to have that level of continuity. And then on the other hand, it's also devastating because you realize that there are so many things that are working against your ability to just provide them with what they need. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. How do you get people to pay attention to this? I mean, being here is one thing. Being here is one thing, going, so thank you no, for that. Going to do it now, but you, you're here to tell that story. You go and do that work and then and relay that. But how do you get people to pay attention to it at a time when there's a lot and it's hard? And the easy thing to do is go click and you turn it off or you turn on something else. Um, how do you compel people to, 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 to not do that? I think you have to be honest and persistent some people would say relentless. <laughs> um, I think that it is important to humanize these stories. We distill war, for example, down into these geopolitical realities. And you and I discussed this before the show. It's it, People will often say yes, but, or no, but, as opposed to the yes, and around, uh, you know, there are no limits to our compassion. And I think the other thing that's really important- But that's is, hard to convince people. Of. It is hard to convince people. Of, but when you can demonstrate success, I mean, as much as I've talked about Malakal and how challenging that is and feeling, especially for the refugees who are being targeted, that it's very difficult to know how to move those chess pieces around on the board. For example, I was also in WOW, which is another area close to the border where we've been operating for many years now and where uh, Global Affairs Canada has been together with World Vision and CARE. We've been providing some food security and agricultural programming with women and girls. And so they're, they're farming, they're earning an income, they're sending their kids to school. And so you do see tremendous progress and success. And you see communities emerging from violence and instability and rebuilding and providing for themselves and being optimistic about the future. And if if you can communicate 
that piece of it as well and not leave people feeling like it is hopeless and helpless. It is never hopeless and helpless. The only thing that is ever limiting are the resources that you have at your disposal to do something. Can I ask you about, there are other conflicts that are consuming this world right now and consuming our attention. Um, And one certainly top of mind this weekend uh, and this morning is what's happening in Gaza, Mm. where you have... uh, Eight countries, at least, including Canada, uh, that are suspending some or all uh, aid payments to the United Nations agency that is on the ground in Gaza providing aid there because of allegations that some employees of that agency were uh, participants in the October 7th attacks in Israel. What do you make of what's happening right now when it comes to that aid the, the story of aid and what aid will or won't be delivered. UNRWA says that it'll run out of funds by the end of February if money doesn't flow. And that would be absolutely devastating for the more than 2 million civilians that are dependent on that aid. Look, there have been uh, accusations leveled against 12 out of 13,000 employees. The accusations are incredibly serious ones. Uh, It also appears that the UN took very swift action against those employees. It is very difficult when you're running such a large-scale operation, and this is not an excuse, this is an explanation. It's very difficult when you're running such a large-scale operation to not have elements that are infiltrating with their own political and other forms of ideology. As much as you can screen, as much as you can cross-reference and check, there are all of these rogue actors who will try to infiltrate the humanitarian apparatus in order to exploit it or to further an agenda. And terrorist groups are not unique in this respect. You even have Western governments that have used uh, non-governmental organizations, international NGOs, in order to gather intelligence, to infiltrate, to do all of these kinds of things. So the weaponization of aid in many respects is not is not a new phenomenon. And trying to weed out those bad actors and create a legitimate humanitarian space is 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 an ongoing challenge. So I'll preface everything I'm about to say with, with just that caveat. So 12 people out of 13,000. There is no other organization or entity on the ground right now that has that kind of logistical infrastructure to be able to meet these incredibly acute needs with 26,000 people who have died, with millions who have been displaced, the highest risk right now of famine in the world. People are literally starving to death. And so while we need to, and there will be accountability, there will be, I think, further investigations, there will be uh, steps and actions that are taken, Cutting off aid in this environment is only going to sanction and leave more people vulnerable who had nothing to do with that. Do you think it's collective punishment? It is collective punishment. What should Canada be thinking about in the face of what you've just said? I think Canada should be demanding accountability from the United Nations. It should be demanding a very clear strategy for how it's going to approach its aid operations going forward. But what's the alternative? The alternative is you set up a new infrastructure that's inconceivable in length of, in the period of time that we have. Uh, does Israel step in and try to provide humanitarian assistance? Again, also inconceivable. That is setting them up to be targets within uh, a part of the world that will be openly hostile to to those um, actors coming in and trying to provide those services. There is this is what we have. It is a um, flawed system. It is an imperfect system. It is a system that will 
that has to be accountable over the long run, but to try to prosecute all of this at this moment in time and to withhold aid from a, uh, from a very desperate population um, is, is, is going to cause unprecedented, I think, humanitarian devastation. We've already seen a significant amount of that. It will only get worse. Is that a region that your organization will try to go to when it's safe, when it's possible to get into? We're always evaluating to see when we're needed. We're, we're the bridge between emergency humanitarian assistance and, and recovery. Yeah. So we do a lot of work in the area of education and catch-up learning and child protection. All of which is going to be needed. All of which is going to be needed. So we'll continue to monitor it. But I'll also be honest with you, we will never operate in a place where we feel that we will be beholden or extorted uh, in any capacity by by any rogue actors, whether they're illegitimate governments, whether they're terrorist groups or otherwise. So if we do not feel that we can operate someplace safely and effectively and in a way that is unencumbered by these other agendas, we simply won't do it. And that's why we are not in some locations and we are in others. Is it hard doing the work that you do? Given, I mean, I, I think it's hard for people to to absorb the world that we're in right now. You're seeing a lot of this stuff firsthand. And I said earlier that, it, that you've managed to keep cynicism at bay. Is that true? I think I have. Yeah, I, and I, I think that I keep the cynicism at bay because I bear witness to extraordinary progress every day. And we have more than 600 staff throughout the world who come from war zones who are um, championing, championing our, our programs throughout the world. And all that they ask of me is that I just get up every day and stare it down and and try to fundraise and try to draw attention to it and try to create space for them to be able to operate. And uh, it's hard. We're, the world is on fire at the moment, and it's hard to know where we should all be putting our, our time and attention and energy, and it feels a lot easier to just close ourselves off. But the moment we do that is the moment that we fan the flames and we have to be very careful about that because we are seeing the regional implications of this crisis. I've been in Yemen three times mm. in the last year. Uh, and we are seeing Iran, for example, providing military support and drone support to the Sudanese uh, army. And and that's on the other side of, of Yemen. It's, and you've got Port Sudan and you've got the Red Sea and you've got the, – it is all interconnected. And if we don't pay attention to it and we resign ourselves to this sense that – it's not our problem and there's nothing we can do about it. It will It is only guaranteed to make things worse and to give those rogue actors the, the advantage. I think those of us who are um, humanitarian right now, who believe in empathy, who believe in just societies, who believe in compassion, the most important thing that we can do is to continue to express that every day. Thanks for paying attention. And Thank thanks for, for being here. Me. Thank you for having me. Dr. Samantha Nutt is the founder and president of War Child Canada. She is just back from South Sudan. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.